Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great day. What a great morning. What a great week. And what a great opportunity is ours uh, to gather together for Christian worship and uh, to sing songs such as we have just been able to sing. Lead on, O King Eternal. Reminds me of Prof. Johnson, who's been dead a very, very long time. He was known as Prof. Johnson uh, because that's just what all the students called him. He was, during uh, the early 20th century, a, uh, well, I, I guess it must have been the middle. He was still alive when I was a student in 1980, and I think he was 141, something like that. And uh, he, uh, he, he was still a, a presence on campus, and he was a professor of articulation. We don't have a professor of articulation right now. Uh, he taught elocution and articulation because we had students who needed to learn how to articulate and to elocute. He was once asked what he had spent his career doing, and he said, trying to get Mary and Joseph out of the manger. Because people would read the Bible sloppily and say, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger, all three of them. And uh, he said the articulation matters, it matters. And uh, he said it's not just trying to get Mary and Joseph out of the manger, it is also trying to get people to actually say the words of hymns and sing them clearly. Because otherwise it just becomes a mash of sounds. And uh, uh, he gave a lecture one time on listening to the words of the hymns we sing. And uh, his example was, lead on, O King Eternal. And I think of that every time we get to sing that hymn. Before we turn to the word of God, let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you just in awe of the fact that you allow us to worship, much less to sing such songs, to gather together as your people, to be in your presence and to be in your presence together. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that your word by your spirit will do the work which you would do in us, O King Eternal. And as we turn to your word, we pray as we have sung, lead on, O King. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want us to turn to John chapter 6. As you have your scriptures, turn to John chapter 6. And uh, it is a passage to which I turn very regularly in my thinking and in my imagination. And one of the reasons that this passage speaks so powerfully to me is that it is yet another example in the Gospels of Jesus asking an extremely difficult and unexpected question. We know the questions asked of Jesus. It's interesting to look in the Gospels at the questions that Jesus asks. And I will just warn you in advance, it will be some time before we get to that question. It is because we will take the passage seriously in its context which helps us to understand why the question is so pressing, why it is so important, and why it was simply so shocking when Jesus asked it. 
Now, of course, we're in the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of the Beloved Disciple. We are in John's Holy Spirit-inspired telling of the story of Jesus. John does not begin where Matthew begins. He doesn't begin where Mark and Luke begin. He begins in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John tells us that he created all things such that nothing that is made was made by anyone other than him. The divine word, the logos, and then he tells us the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in a way more theologically declarative, John begins his gospel by answering the question as to who Jesus is in the first words. Which, by the way, as you look at all the different, say, religious texts of the world, one of the most shocking singularities about Scripture is the fact that both Genesis and in the New Testament, John begin by answering the question in the first line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a punchline. It's not a later disclosure. That's the way all of Scripture begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John begins his gospel there, and then very quickly the public ministry of Jesus begins. And John shows us a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious authorities of his day in such a way that the context of conflict, it illuminates so much about the ministry of Jesus. The identity of Jesus, which had been declared in verse 1, is disclosed in two dimensions in the Gospel of John that are unique to the Gospel of John. One of them is the particular mastery with which Jesus handles crowds, authorities, inquisitors. And the other, of course, is Jesus's unique use of irony in the Gospel of John. Jesus is a master of the rhetorical technique of irony, and he leans into it. He turns the situation upside down. You ask one thing, Jesus effectively reveals that was a stupid question. And he answers another thing. He seizes the initiative by his use of irony, by his use of questions. Here in John chapter 6, we find an amazing passage. And John chapter 6 is most famous for what is less significant. It is most famous for the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, of course, that's not less significant in the sense of the importance of a miracle, but it's Jesus himself who says that was just about bread. It was just about bread. All that happened was that you got to eat. And so it's Jesus himself who says that the feeding of the 5,000 was actually, it was a sign. Yes, it was a sign. It was a sign you obviously missed. If you got it, you wouldn't have come across the lake as you're going to see to ask me. And by the way, it wasn't the feeding of 5,000, was it? It was the feeding of 5,000 men. And then there were unnumbered women and children. And this is a predicament that shows us 
what we might otherwise miss, and that is the fact that in Jesus' public ministry, the crowds were so unprecedented. After all, we're not talking about a city here. We're talking about the region of Galilee. And the crowd was so large that it numbered thousands. And, and those thousands numbered in the men and then the women and the children. And what was happening was that they came to hear Jesus. What was not happening was cooking. And uh, there is no instant meal in the ancient world. The preparation of one day's meal would take up much, if not most, of the energies of the household, especially as uh, the woman of the household would be making bread. And in many cases, there would be men who would be out in the field working and would also bring in fish. And you know the story, the one little boy. And when I was in Sunday school, there were characters in that story that simply aren't in the Bible. That's the way it worked. When the story was told to me, there was the character of the little boy's mother who carefully packed his loaves and fishes because that's what mothers do and kissed him on the head as he went out. Uh, she was a preparer, as mothers are a preparer. She's a worrier. She was worried the little boy might get hungry, and she just wanted to make sure she was taking And she's a Jewish mother, so she understood exactly how to, uh, to, to, to kind of stereotypically get him ready. It was like when I went to uh, the Holy Land and uh, was actually a, a guest of the state of Israel, which meant we were supposed to have a superb guide. And the first thing we were shown outside of Jericho is the place where Mary's donkey rested. That's when I turned into a Bultmanian in Israel. I simply said, I don't think so. I don't think so. And the guide looked at me and said, why don't you think so? I said, because there's nothing about that in the Bible. And he said, well, this isn't talking about the Bible. This is talking about Jesus Right, that was the point. <laughs> that was the point. Instantly, that was the point. Demythologize the tour guide. That's the first instruction. But the, the feeding of the 5,000 was presented as this massive miracle story, which of course it is. In other words, the closer you look at this text, the, the miracle does not recede in its significance. It grows in its significance for two reasons. And it is because what takes place is absolute disclosure. Ultimately, it is a disclosure of the fact that Jesus is the word who was with God and was God. Who is God? John began by telling us he's the creator of all things. You think a few thousand hungry people are too much of a challenge? taking those loaves and fishes and multiplying them. After all, he had created them. It's just a sign of the, an affirmation. John's word for miracles is sign. That helps us to understand this is what it is. This is about disclosure. This is about revealing to all who have eyes to see and ears to hear that he is the Christ. But that was yesterday. We pick up today in John chapter 6, today. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And I'm just going to stop here. It's like saying, you know, Rabbi, well, how surprised we are to find you here. Now, they went around the Sea of Galilee to find him, only to act surprised when they found him, as if Jesus could not read them clearly. Jesus does read them clearly. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Again, Jesus says, okay, clowns, I know exactly why you're here. And you're here because of the bread yesterday, and that's a sad commentary on you. Because you are here because yesterday you were hungry and you were filled. And it's as if to say, that was a miracle, guys. That was a sign, a sign. That was about who I am, not about feeding you bread. But you missed the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he gives them this instruction, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And again, disclosure. What was disclosed? That Jesus is the Son of God, which the Son of Man has set on his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, we can just glide right over that as if that makes perfect sense. Because there's a sense in which it appears to be asking, okay, how do we do that? How do we do this multiplying bread thing? That was really cool. Uh, we want to see it again, but if you don't do it again, tell us how to do it. But actually, in the context here, this is a typical question of first century Judaism. What, what should we be doing to work the works of God? What's our purpose for being here? What is, what, what, what is our obligation? What is it... What is it all about? Working the works of God. Jesus answers them quite clearly in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now you say, well, you know, this is justification by faith alone. Here is the seed, the germ of the gospel. Right here in John chapter 6, they ask what work they are to do. And Jesus says, you are to believe in me just three chapters before. Jesus had said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, as you know, in that passage in John 3, we cannot tell in the narrative flow exactly where the quotation of Jesus ends and the, the commentary by John begins, it doesn't matter. It's all Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. But we were told in John 3 that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, when these leaders say, what are the works that we should work? What is our purpose for existence? What, what, what is the work we are to do? Jesus says, the work you are to do is to believe in me. Well, it continues. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is, this is snarky. This is, this is badly, badly mangled argument. This is going to be embarrassing. So what sign are you going to do? Okay, so yeah, yesterday, that feeding of the 5,000, that was cool. You say you're not going to do that again, and then you tell us that we're to believe in you, so give us a sign. And uh, what are we looking for? Oh, I don't know. Guys, what will we ask for as a sign? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Father gave our fathers manna in the wilderness. They can't get off of bread. These guys have a food obsession that is absolutely amazing. But, of course, it's deeper than that. It's a covenantal sign. And, and, and both sides in this conflict or this conversation know exactly what's going on at this point. And Jesus rebukes them in his answer in, in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread Always. That sounds almost like a confession of faith, right? I mean, almost, not really, but almost, you know. Okay, if, if there's a bread that endures forever, uh, I want that bread. Give us that bread. And, uh, you know, there's a sense in which you could imagine at so many points in this passage, this, the passage actually coming to an end, the narrative and the conversation coming to an end, and John moving on to the next thing in the life and ministry of Jesus. But no, this just keeps on going. It just keeps on going. And they said, give us this bread always. And Jesus knows that they have no idea what they just asked for. And so one of the most important verses in the entire Gospel of John is chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You, you come all the way over here to ask for bread. You keep asking for bread. I tell you, I'm not going to do the same miracle again, and here you come back and ask for manna. I am the bread of life. You ask for a sign. That was a sign to me. I am the sign. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He told them about the bread which once received meant the woman never hunger again. There is no physical bread you can eat from which you will never hunger again. There is a deeper hunger in every single one of us as sinners. And once we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, he is the bread of life for us forever. They clearly do not understand it. Jesus, though, continues. As he's speaking to them, he tells them they don't get it. Verse 36, but I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You ask for a sign, see, 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 here I am. See, sign, don't see. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So that's a relatively long discourse section there. But I want you to see two verses that need to leap out at us in their duality. R.C. Sproul used to define these two verses as the universal positive principle of the gospel and the universal negative principle of the gospel. I think he's exactly right. In two verses, the universal positive statement of the gospel and the universal negative statement of the gospel. And both of these must be understood as God's word and is belonging together. First of all, the universal positive statement or principle of the gospel, it's in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's the positive statement. You'll notice that it is all, all, the Father gives me, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. And as you look in the Gospel of John, and in particular, you look at the all language, you look at the encompassing language, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever, here's all. All the Father gives me will come to me. And, and brother preachers, this is our confidence in preaching the gospel. You, you don't preach the gospel faithfully in season and out of season, hoping that some of those who belong to the Father will come to him. No, the promise is all the Father gives me will come to me. Those whom the Father gave to Christ before the foundation of the world, every single one of them will come to him, and not one of them will be lost. That's not a statement from some classic Christian theologian. Those are the words of Jesus. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, never cast out. The universal negative statement of the gospel is found in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Rather than all, no one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
If you put the two together, those two verses together, as if we were just putting them in closest proximity to one another, hear it this way. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The mystery of salvation is that any are saved. The mystery of salvation and the power of the gospel is why are there some who believe and some who do not believe? How could there be brothers who hear the gospel together? One believes and one does not. How can you explain how you as a Christian came to believe in Christ when someone sitting beside you hearing the same gospel did not? How do we explain why those who are saved are saved to the uttermost? How do we explain this? I find these two verses most convincing when looking at them in proximity in this one passage where Jesus is speaking first of all to those who saw the sign, those who spoke to him in person, those to whom Jesus revealed himself in one of the great I am statements, I am the bread of life. Those who saw and heard and yet did not believe. All of humanity is separated into one of these two verses, either in the all the Father gives me will come to me or in the no one can come to me, except the Father draws him. And the one who says this is I am. This is the language that came from the bush that burned and was not consumed when Moses said, what is your name? I am that I am. I am. For Jesus to identify himself repeatedly in the Gospel of John by saying, I am. It's a clear, unmistakable unconfusable declaration that he is claiming deity. I am the bread of life. Feed on me. They will not feed. Look at verse 41 again. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So this becomes the very source of their grumbling. It becomes the very ground of their stumbling. They, they just can't get past the fact that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And it appears that in their arrogance, they don't like any part of that sentence. They don't like I am. And as we shall see, they come to understand the consequences of Jesus making that claim. And they don't like the fact he is the bread of life. That's not the kind of bread they're looking for. Don't talk to me about esoteric bread of life. Yesterday you gave us bread. Give us some more of that. The passage continues again. Jesus repeats the I am statement in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Hey, don't you love the simplicity of the language? Die? Don't die. 
There's your gospel invitation right there. It comes down to this, brothers and sisters. Die, don't die. Choose ye this day. It's just that simple. Jesus went on to describe what it means that he is the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there is substitution. There is atonement. How much more of the gospel can we possibly get in one passage? Well, wait. And then the response in verse 52, in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay, I just want to suggest that sometimes when you're shocked by a question, you need to ask yourself if you're shocked by the question for the right reason. Because your first thought, my first thought, in looking at this passage and looking at that question is to think that what they're stumbling on is give us his flesh to eat. But I think the closer you look, it's actually indignation at Jesus speaking of himself as the bread of life. It's almost as if their great offense is who is this to give us his bread, his flesh to eat. It's so special. And, and you see how that continues when they're asking, why does this work? The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now remember back in verses 41 and following, they had asked, you know, about him. Who, who, is, who is he? Isn't this... And you'll notice the language they use there, you know, is, isn't this someone we know? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? How does he now say, his bread, his flesh? Who, who is he? Now, again, the audacity of that is just, let us remind ourselves, they came to Jesus not because they didn't have reason to believe. They came to Jesus because the day before he had been preaching and teaching and then had performed the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. This is just a sign to us that the gospel really is a contradiction to the world. So much so that we like to think if we can just put it before anybody, everybody will believe. 
And we're called to preach the gospel to everyone, to present the claims of Christ to everyone, to declare the power of the gospel to everyone. But it is sheer fiction to think that our evangelism would be more effective than the evangelism of Jesus. What have you done for me lately? But notice how this passage appears to come to a climactic end. You know, what if there were a public relations or rhetorical communication strategist we could bring in to help Jesus a little bit here? Because clearly by the time we get this far in the passage, we have a communications challenge. We have two sides in a communication equation and the communication is not happening. What's gone wrong here? Well, Jesus is using this confusing language about being the bread of life. These guys, after all, give them a little sympathy. They came for bread. Jesus just turns the tables on them and starts talking about himself as the bread of life. That's an abstraction. They're not looking for an abstraction. They are looking for bread. And, and not only that, they have this hunger that, that is driving them and perhaps just the spectacle of yesterday. You know, give us a little food. Give us a little of that yesterday. We're not asking for you to change our lives, Jesus. We're just asking you, give us some bread. Give us a show. And Jesus keeps going to the core of their problem and keeps trying to talk about their need for the bread of life and the bread that endures forever. One may eat of it and not die, but that's an abstraction. And, and then it gets crude. It gets very crude. The Gospel of John leans into what by human fallen secular eyes can only be described as crude and grotesque. There's a form of literature known as the grotesque, especially in English literature, particularly in the 19th century. And, and the mark of the grotesque is that it's a literary device to get our attention simply by making things as repulsive as possible. And, and there are, you know, liberal Bible scholars who look at the Gospel of John as a grotesque because John just doesn't back off and it's because Jesus didn't back off. You don't like my image of the bread of life? You don't like me declaring that I am the bread of life? You, you, you don't like me telling you that my flesh is the bread of life for you? You don't like that? Well, see if you're gonna like this. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the Father, living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. Whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. You didn't like the part about feeding on my flesh? Didn't let me say it slowly. If you eat my flesh, you live. If you do not eat my flesh, you die. There's so much here for everything from substitutionary atonement to justification by faith alone and the beautiful picture of the gospel as feeding on Christ, receiving him, the bread of life, who satisfies forever. Now again, you could divide humanity between those who want that bread and those who hate that bread. 
Now, if you brought in the kind of missiological strategist some churches would bring in today, the missiological strategist would say, wait, 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 wait. Why do you keep leaning in on this serious divisive theology stuff? I mean, clearly it's not selling. Clearly this is not helping. If you're trying to build a crowd, Jesus, you want a crowd? Then go back to yesterday. Let's go, let's go back to yesterday. You were on to something yesterday, Jesus. In fact, we can put that into a church growth strategy. We can, uh, we can work that up. You keep doing this feeding of the 5,000 thing. We can have multiple 5,000s, Jesus. And, uh, you know, we can put together have a video series. It's going to be swell. But people tend to back off Jesus the minute you start making it about you and the moment you begin talking about yourself as the bread of life and then you tell that people that they're going to have to eat this bread and that it will endure to eternal life and this bread is your flesh. I mean, seriously, seriously, we have a marketing problem here. It is grotesque in the sense that it is supposed to shock us into an understanding that we otherwise would completely miss about our need for redemption. And our need for redemption can only be accomplished by the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and his flesh, our bread, is the only means of salvation. Jesus taught these things in the synagogue at Capernaum. And that's all pretext. I want us to look at the next section particularly. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So again, the, the scene shifts in verse 60. And, and now the scene is Jesus with those who claim to be his disciples. And just to be fair about the math and what we're looking at here, it is not that Jesus is here only with the 12, even though Jesus knew from the beginning the one of the 12 who would betray him. But also what we see in all four of the Gospels is that there were larger bands of those who claimed to be the disciples of Jesus. And in all four of the Gospels, at some point, many of them fall away. In the Gospel of John, this is when many of those, we might say false disciples or casual disciples, simply fall away. But as you're looking at the flow of the text, some of them are saying to one another, this is, too, this is a step too far. I mean, it's one thing to say you're the bread of life, We'll stick around for that. But the moment Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, the bread is my flesh, and you must eat it if you will live, and if you will not eat it, you will die. And, and the singularity of the I am and, and all the rest, some of them are saying, this is a hard statement. Well, hang around with Jesus, because that's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear very hard statements. Jesus knew what they were thinking. In verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, two questions Jesus is going to ask in this passage. The second, I believe, 
more terrifying than the first. But this is the first. Are you offended at this? I mean, here's an honest statement. The origin of so much theological error begins in being offended by the words of Jesus and is extended to being offended by the words of Scripture, all of them. You realize that the crisis that produced theological liberalism and modern liberal biblical criticism, that that origin was in a discomfort with the actual words of Scripture, a discomfort with the words of Jesus, so much so that the early energies, particularly in the German-speaking biblical criticism, the early energies were directed towards asking whether any of this can be taken as credible in the modern world. And so many of the points of attention in the Old Testament were to the very beginning of Scripture, particularly the Pentateuch and more particularly, the book of Genesis, I and mean, that's just not tenable anymore. That's just not conceivable anymore. In an increasingly uh, scientifically understood universe, you can't start out in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we can overthrow that. But when it came to the New Testament, the central stumbling block were the words that Jesus spoke that were so strong as these words are and as clear. And so the early effort was to say Jesus did not say these things. And by the time I was a seminary student, a group called the Jesus Seminar was meeting of uh, extremely liberal New Testament scholars. And they were trying to take the idea of a red letter New Testament. Now, by the way, that's a bad idea, I would argue. Don't get rid of your red letter New Testament if you have one. Just understand that the red letters are not more inspired than the black letters. And furthermore, we don't know exactly what's supposed to be red and black throughout much of the New Testament, but just hold that for a moment. The Jesus Seminar attempted to determine by their scholarly judgment what words attributed to Jesus were likely actually said by him. They had four different colored marbles. They had a black marble, Black marble was, Jesus certainly didn't say this. The gray marble probably didn't say this. And then there was a pink marble, might have said this. And then a red marble, we're pretty sure Jesus said this. And as one scholar said, by the time the Jesus seminar had finished with Jesus, there was very little red, there was a lot of black, a little bit of gray and pink, and Jesus sounded like a sarcastic Palestinian folk poet. And that's about all there was. Now, let me just point out, we would not be here today in the name of a sarcastic Palestinian folk poet, and there would be no salvation in his name. There is salvation in his name precisely because he is the bread of life. Jesus asked his larger band of disciples, do you take offense at this? Can you imagine what would have to be the context for that question to be asked today. And you look at so much of what's called evangelicalism, and I think we'd have to say, the big issue is, does this offend you? Just in the last few hours, a public relations campaign for Jesus has just been launched with massive millions of dollars to make people think better of Jesus, and guess what's not claimed? You're not gonna find 
any of the hard sayings of Jesus, it's really hard to do a public relations campaign for Jesus because Jesus undercuts your message all the time. If you're doing public relations, then you're gonna have to keep on, well, I'll just say, you're gonna have to keep on acting like a very frustrated White House press spokesperson. Yeah, I know the president said it a third time, but that's not what he meant to say. White House policy remains X or Y. But I want to submit to you that there are an awful lot of preachers who get up like a White House spokesperson every single Sunday and read the Word of God and then say, hey, that I know he said it again, but it's not official church policy. Are you taking offense at this? Are you offended by this? I mean, what a question for Jesus to ask his church. But then the situation grows more intense when Jesus basically says, well, then what if I had not come? What if I returned to the Father now? This is why I told you in verse 65 that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now when there are those who are grumbling and those who are falling away, it's at that point Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Do you want to go away as well? That's the terrifying question. Do you also want to go away? Do you want to go away as well? Do you also want to go away? The larger band of disciples, those who are more casual, those who were not in the 12 but were a part of that larger group of disciples, they are now no longer walking with Jesus, and Jesus does not speak to them. Jesus speaks to the 12, and he turns to the 12 and just asks them, do you also want to go away? I must just tell you that this question obsesses me because I find it to be the most haunting question found anywhere in Scripture. It's Jesus talking to his church. It's Jesus talking to his own. We're told that he knows who Judas is, but to the rest of them he says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you also want to go away? Do you want to go away? I hope we feel the horror of that question. I hope we feel the presence of that question. Because I do not believe this is in God's word in order that we can see that Jesus asked that question one time. I want to suggest that this is the question Jesus presents to the church in every generation. Do you also want to go away? Very quickly, think of another passage. It's a passage I think is often misused. 1 John chapter 2. Very quickly, as you look at this passage, in verse 19, John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain 
that they are not, they all are not of us. That you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. When I was a teenager, I heard of a church split. It was an independent Baptist church. I had friends who went to that church, and it split. And you know what the people who stayed said of those who left? They went out from us because they were not of us. You hear this when someone leaves the church, and maybe you kind of thought they needed to leave the church, and they had been an irritant, they had been unfaithful, they had been troublesome, and they went out from us because they were not of us. I always want to argue that this passage is often misused in precisely that way, because this isn't Jesus here, it's not John here saying, no, these are just people who were once a part of our congregation and now they departed from us. This is Jesus saying, they were once of us. I know this is coming through John. But don't you hear John 6? Here in 2 John, in 1 John 2. They went out from us because they were not of us. All of them were not of us. This is not about of us a congregation. It's not of us an organization. It's not of us a movement. It's of us the church. The statement, they were not of us, that's why they went out from us. It's not about leaving a congregation. It's not about exiting a denomination. It's about being shown as never having been a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to John. Do you also want to go away? You know, there's an entire movement right now. This just never goes away. Speaking of going away, this question never goes away. This temptation never goes away. The temptation towards Protestant liberalism, it just keeps coming up again and again and again and again. The temptation to say, did God really say that? Did Jesus really say that? Does this really matter? Do we have to believe this? Do we have to preach this? Can't we dress that up a little? Can't we clean that up a little? When it comes to the biblical commands concerning sexuality, the biblical definition of marriage, you know, can't, can't we just be quiet about that? Can't we just find, can't we just find there are just a few, quote, scare verses in Scripture? There are a lot of verses on other things. Let's look at those other verses increasingly under the pressure of a secular age, the cracks are forming in a familiar pattern. So now we have the movement known as exvangelicals. And they basically are saying evangelical Christianity is holding to the, these hateful verses and these, the, the, these clobber verses and, 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 and is holding to this you know, antipathy towards so many of the cultural directions of the world to which we just need to surrender. And uh, the entire paradigm has to be rejected. And so they will take on the hashtag exvangelical. How cute. And there are those who are talking about deconstructing the faith. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just this idea. taking. And by the way, as if you could bring a, a French philosopher like Jacques Derrida, a literary scholar into it, literary theorist, well, that's going to dress unbelief up a whole lot. 
uh, you know, and Derrida rejected objective truth and the, the, the knowledge of what was objectively real behind the text. The text is just the text itself and all the meaning is constructed and uh, that's all meaning can be is constructed. And of course, if meaning is constructed, that it can be deconstructed because the one who constructed it in the beginning was likely driven by patriarchal and oppressive ambitions to exert power over others and over their sex lives and over their definition of marriage and over their understanding of the gospel and over their understanding of, of the church. And, and, and so if it can be constructed, and that's all there is, that it can be deconstructed. At the end of the day, Jesus asked the question 2,000 years ago, do you also want to go away? If the ex-evangelicals think they're up to something new, we need to direct them to John chapter 6. But in conclusion, let's be thankful we're not left merely with this most pressing and urgent of the questions of Jesus. We're left with the faith of the church. Do you also want to go away? Who's going to answer? You know. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Okay, brothers and sisters, time is fleeting, but don't rush past those words. You have biblical authorization, New Testament precedent. You have, you have the example of Peter, the rock. Do you also want to go away? I know no one has put this to a great hymn. No one has put such words to a great memorable hymn tune. Like lead on, O King Eternal. But one of the sweetest, most powerful declarations of the Christian faith comes first of all from Peter. When Jesus says, do you also want to go away? Peter doesn't first say, no! Lead on, O King Eternal. Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? I think that needs to be made into an anthem. I should, we should assign that. It doesn't exactly sound like one of the thrilling highlights of Handel's oratorio, the, the, the Messiah, Lord, to whom shall we go? I want to suggest to you that is one of the most thunderous declarations and confessions of faith found anywhere in Scripture. It is so honest. It is the disciples' honesty. It is the Christian sincerity. Do you want, also want to go away? Okay, let's just be honest, Lord. We've got no option. There is no plan B. We've got nowhere to go. It's one of the sweetest confessions of faith found anywhere in Scripture. And this is not Peter in his bombast. This is Peter in his sincerity. And this is actually what the rock of biblical faith looks like. The rock of biblical faith looks like simply acknowledging to the Lord, we have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. And then, climactically, we have believed and come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. Do you also want to go away? Will you be among those who went out from us because you were not of us? Lord, to whom will we go? We're out of options. We're with you. You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to know and to confess that you are the Holy One of God. I just want to suggest to you that the answer and the question are so important that on that question and this answer hangs the entirety of the Christian faith and a question addressed to the Christian church in every generation and an answer that has to be given with equal sincerity and truth in every generation may be true of this generation by God's grace. Let's remember the question and the answer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you have given us in your word. Father, we pray that we will hear this question and never cease to hear it and that we'll be ready to answer like Peter and never hesitant to answer. Father, may you show your glory in your church even as we sing. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.